Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Today is the day that may be decisive in the presidential race, or maybe we just hope it's going to be decisive because we we want this to be over, because we want a little bit of clarity. We have uh, some new polls from Pennsylvania, which are bringing things into a little bit of focus. Uh, The death toll worldwide on the coronavirus has passed one million. But the big story today is, of course, the first presidential debate, uh, Donald Trump facing off against Joe Biden. Uh, joining us to talk about that is Jonathan Allen, best-selling author and NBC correspondent. What, you have a, you actually have a fancy title at NBC, don't you? Uh, I'm senior political analyst. Okay. Is there a junior political analyst? There is not. I'm the senior, okay. the junior, the left political analyst, the right political analyst, the center political analyst, the defensive tackle. Political okay, analyst. there there you go. I mean, when you're a se- when you're a senior editor or a senior political analyst, that just gives you the right basically to tell kids to get off your lawn, right? Yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, part of a negotiation, um, <laughs> you know, where they where where you don't get extra money for the extra things, so you're like, uh, can you put senior in front of it? I think that's the way that it so, something along those lines. Okay, no, I was so- I was a senior reporter and then I became an analyst for this year, uh, basically because I'm writing a book and there was uh, an interest in, um, uh, you know, trying to prevent conflicts between oh. information gathered for the book. And So what's what's the book going to be? Uh, it'll be about the 2020 election. Oh, brother. So you're not done yet? No, definitely <laughs> not. No. So here we are. We're sitting here on it's September 29th. I mean, Charlie, listen, yeah. you, gotta, you gotta imagine the difficulty of trying to write about this election when uh the people close in with one candidate are not actually with that candidate, and the people close into the other candidate either keep leaving the White House or ending up in uh, you know, tremendous legal jeopardy uh, from which they are usually only reachable through lawyers. Well, it's certainly possible that some of those people will have a lot of time on their hands to talk to you, right? Uh, a lot of free time to be able to. So here we are at the end of September, 2020, at the beginning of the month, the 538 average had Joe Biden up by seven points. It has been an absolutely insane month uh, as usual. And at the end of the month, Joe Biden is leading by seven points. Nothing has moved. <laughs> Nothing has changed. So I guess the question is, does this debate tonight, which is going to be watched by tens of millions of people, will it make a difference? Or is this race just too stable? What is your take? It's so easy to take the position that the debate's not going to matter because uh, there's a, a pretty big range of the spectrum in which uh, the numbers don't move that much or look like they haven't moved that much. However, I think one of the reasons the race has been stable is that we haven't had any debates yet. I think people want to see Trump and Biden up against each other. I think they want to see what Biden's answers are to Trump's charges and vice versa. Um, and, you know, it doesn't take a lot in an election that is uh, that appears to be very close. Um, it doesn't take a lot to, to sort of change the, the formula of that. Um, so even small movements can matter. I look back at, say, Mitt Romney in 2012 in the first debate with Barack Obama. He came in trailing significantly. I think the average was about three and a half, four points. But, the you know, the sort of broader context was Romney had been trailing by a lot coming into that debate. And by the end of it, he actually pulled ahead of Obama. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I say the end of it, I mean, you know, within the next week. And then there was that uh, Biden-Palin debate that I think helped stabilize Obama. Um, and then the, you know, the future, the second two presidential debates. 
uh, Obama did better than he had. But, you know, Romney had a real opportunity after that first debate uh, to put the hammer down on Obama and was uh, was unable to do it. Ronald Reagan, 1981 debate against Jimmy Carter. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they come into that debate. Carter's got a lead. There's a rally around the flag effect with uh, the Iran hostage situation. And then, you know, after that debate, Reagan took off uh, really in the final week of the campaign. Was it the debate or was it the uh, just the other fundamentals? I, I guess one of the questions I always have about this, like, for example, 2012 was a pretty good example. But um, that was always Obama's. I mean, o- Obama seemed to have a relatively even though the polls went back and forth, the fundamentals favored him. There was a blip from the debate, but the, that debate blip was not enough to change the underlying dynamics of the campaign. Or do you have a different read on that? You know, I have a slightly different read on it, which is that the debates give an opportunity for uh, the candidates to try to frame what it is the public is voting on. Um, and it's not just the people who watch the debates, it's the people who read about them in the newspaper or see clips of them uh, on television or, you know, now streaming <laughs> uh, or through their viral social media feeds. I mean, I think the after effects of a debate can really uh, sometimes be a little latent. And I think that they matter a lot for framing what it is voters are making their decision on because the average person is, you know, they walk into the debate, you know, the person who's persuadable, uh, what does that mean? Persuading them to vote from not voting or persuading from, you know, one side to the other. They're not people who are paying like super close attention to begin with. Uh, and I think the debates help them, uh, help them form a decision about like what it is they want to focus on this election. Um, I, you know, I talked to Kathleen Hall Jameson at the Annenberg Public Policy Center in uh, Philadelphia this week. And she, um, I mean, she was talking about the evidence that she has for debates moving public opinion over time. It is somewhat counter to uh, a lot of the the narrative we get that they don't. Okay, so you, you raise an interesting point, though, about the persuadable voters who may not have been paying attention. Isn't that exactly the kind of voter that's likely to be watching HDTV tonight rather than watching the debates? If, 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 you're, if you haven't made up your mind now, if you haven't been paying much attention now, why would you tune in tonight? Because it's that first opportunity to see them against each other. It's a main event. It's uh, the Super Bowl of politics, if you will, um, is, a, is the first presidential debate in any cycle. What did we get, like 84 million people tuning in last time to the first uh, Clinton-Trump debate? I mean, I don't know what the ratings are going to be, but I do believe that the vast majority of, uh, I shouldn't say vast majority, but I believe the majority of people who are going to vote will actually tune into the debate. So you have a you have a piece up on NBC about the soft bigotry of Trump's low expectations, and there's been a lot of talk about this. They 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 seem to have realized very belatedly that by lowering the expectations for Joe Biden, they were handing him a gift because they'd spent ten maybe hundreds of millions of dollars convincing people that Joe Biden is so senile that he's barely going to be able to stumble up to the podium. So, um, but at least in the last 48 hours, it looks like they're going, they're saying, no, uh, let's, let's tell everybody that Joe Biden actually is a pretty good debater, but really. So how how does the expectations game uh, shake out for you? I mean, at this point, Joe Biden merely needs to walk up on stage and speak English in complete sentences to beat the caricature that Donald Trump has drawn for him. I don't know that that's the standard that the, you know, (laughs) that (laughs) most voters are going to have for him, but 
certainly to beat the, the Trump expectations, um, it, it should not be that hard. And of course, if he fails to do it, which I assume Trump will accuse him of failing to do it, whether he does or not, um, you know, is, is potentially, uh, you know, very risky for Biden. He is not uh, the same guy that he was when he was 45 years old, um, you know, other than wanting to talk a lot. I mean, he's somebody you couldn't get away from in the Senate halls if you spoke to him. Uh, like a 45 minute conversation every time. Um, but I'm not sure that him losing a little bit of his uh, fastball in terms of like uh, debate speed is uh, an indication of, um, you know, any sort of diminished mental acuity other than the performance art of a debate. Yeah, I mean, I, I I think there's a certain amount of baked inness of of, of the gap. So I I actually do think that th- this is going to have a, a pretty big audience. I don't know that it's going to you know people are telling pollsters you know three quarters of voters, three quarters three you know seventy five percent are telling uh, pollsters they're going to watch. I I doubt it's going to be that much, but it will be a a huge audience as you point out. And this really is kind of an extraordinary moment in political theater because we all feel we're kind of oversaturated with Donald Trump. We've seen everything. It's been a constant present for four years, but we really haven't seen him in a setting like we're going to see tonight. Right. I mean, the guy hasn't prepared for this as far as I know. So we kind of know what to expect, right? It's kind of going to be a little bit of a rally, a little bit of the briefing, a little bit of the Twitter rants and and all of that. But for the last three and a half years, this is a guy that's controlled his own environment. I mean, he's created this sort of bubble of affirmation around him. I mean, he's, he's controlled the White House. His rallies are controlled. Even the press briefings are reasonably controlled because he can always walk out. Uh, he's had a couple of tough interviews, but but now he's he's not only going to face some tough questions. He's going to face an actual opponent. Um, and so that really is something that Donald Trump hasn't experienced. Actually, the, the first debates tend to be shaky for incumbent presidents because this really is kind of a culture shock for them after being the president of the United States for four years. I'm thinking you, you mentioned Obama's first debate was shaky. George W. Bush's first debate in 2004 was also notoriously shaky. But this is this is very much. Uh, some, I mean, he 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 mixed it up four years ago, but he really hasn't had to for the last four years. No, he hasn't, and he comes in. I'm not sure the degree to which he appreciates this, but he comes in in such a different position. In 2016, he walks in to the debate, and he's trying to take down the establishment, and he's trying to rattle the system. Uh, and there is value to him in being somewhat disrespectful or irreverent when it comes to uh, the the trappings of the debate and, you know, how you're supposed to behave on stage because he was uh, modeling himself that way. As president of the United States, even though he's trying to run as sort of an outsider insider, I'm not sure that flies the same way. You know, the, the you know, wandering around the stage to, uh, you know, to, to loom over your opponent, uh, you know, some of the other antics we saw on stage from him. I think that played well for him and, and pushed into his message in 2016 and 2020. I think he still needs at some level to prove that he's presidential. Um, and that is an incredible irony given that he's the president and Biden, who is not the president, uh, no one has raised the question of whether he's qualified to be president. Nobody's raised the question of whether he looks like a president or has that presidential timber. Um, the only question Donald Trump has raised is whether 
he needs drugs to be mentally competent to debate. Um, and so we're now at the point where the, you know, the Biden campaign has basically told uh, Trump that if he wants to piss in a cup to express himself, he can do that. Um, and the Trump campaign in a, a last minute rally to try to raise expectations is called Biden a master debater, which it's hilarious. Uh, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> it's unbelievable where we are. <laughs> John, I, I have to tell you, when I first saw this, I, I saw I saw it on Twitter, the, the the quote from the Biden campaign about peeing in a cup. And I swear I thought it was a spoof. <laughs> I really didn't think that they would actually put out that statement. I mean, that's one of the classics of, of American political history that we're actually having two presidential candidates the night before the first debate, presidential debate, talking about whether or not um, we're going to pee in a cup and who's pissed away, what, et cetera. But this is the moment that we are in, isn't it? It's, so, it's astounding, Charlie. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I'm not, I'm no prude. Um, no, no. Know, so I, it's not like I haven't heard these terms before. I, but it is a different reaction from the Biden campaign, and, and yeah. a, a fun one, I guess, compared to the uh, the old Fritz Hollings response to whether he should take a drug test before one of his debates. Uh, he returned and said that the uh, his opponent could take an iq test he would take a drug test yeah that's pretty good so okay you help me with this um because i i, I think I'm, I'm pronouncing the name correctly but it, it, it's one of those names that i read but i don't actually say philippe reigns uh it's pronounced right. more like sinus rhinus Ryan, okay, okay, Philippe Ryan. See, I knew I was going to get it wrong. That's why I, I asked. He had a really interesting piece. A former um, Clinton aide he had a very interesting piece in the in the Post yesterday about the debate, saying Donald Trump is a very bad debater. Donald Trump is very difficult to debate. These two seemingly contradictory statements are equally true. He's a dangerous opponent. In 2016, it was because he had nothing to lose. Now it's because he has everything to lose. And, and I and I think that this is interesting because and I wrote this in my newsletter this morning. I said, look, no matter how well prepared Biden is, I mean, debating Trump's kind of like trying to conjugate Latin verbs in the middle of a hurricane of bullshit. I mean, he's going to throw the insults, the smears, the lies and, you know, and just, you know, shameless fabrications at him. And, and that's going to be that that's kind of Joe Biden's big test, right? Not to get rattled or sidetracked by Donald Trump. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know where the hurricane of bullshit comes in. I uh, in Latin. I'm trying to th remember like Agricola is like a farm. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, no, I look. Philippe obviously has spent a lot of time uh, studying the president. I'm not sure about the causality of he had nothing to lose before last time. You know, before the last hmm. set of debates and everything to lose now. I think Donald Trump is just Donald Trump. I think he's constantly um, looking for ways to. Uh, tear into his opponents, whether they are political opponents, members of his cabinet, you know, close friends who have what? said that he shouldn't be president. Um, and he's bombastic about it. And that, it's just who he is. But this goes back to your point earlier about that it's different because he's the president now. And so you wonder how does it play? He's going to come out. His instincts will tell him that he's going to lash out. He's going to attack. And I kind of wonder if the audience is as big as we think it is, there are going to be tens of millions of people that, you know, haven't necessarily become inured to the, you know, kind of, you know, White House briefings or rally, you know, melt meltdowns. And when he lashes out, um, I, I kind of wonder how it's going to play for a lot of them 
it may be kind of unsettling, you know, the, the kind of the ugliness. So, I mean, there, there's a risk for Trump, but I'm not I, I'm guessing that there's no one around him that's basically saying, hey, just make sure you're not too hard on Hunter Biden. I mean, that's that's those are not the words being whispered in his ear right now. Yeah. Even if they did, he wouldn't listen to it. Right. Um, right. My uh, yeah, I think the the great risk for Trump is that he manages to make himself non-presidential, unpresidential, that he takes that that bar that he's cleared. He takes it and he puts it back over his head again um, for a lot of those voters that you're talking about that are, you know, not, you know, they're loosely uh, attached to politics or, or even less than loosely attached to politics. Um, you know, a lot of Americans, uh, aren't steeped in this stuff every day and they just want to know whether, uh, they can look forward to, to a little bit more money in their pocket next year, if they're going to be able to send their kids to school next year. Um, and, uh, you know, I think ranting and raving, um, you know, about the system that you're trying to destroy that has been, you know, put in, in the path of the American people is, is, I, no, I, I mean, he's right. the president and, and, of the United States yeah, and all of a sudden, you know, you, my expectation is that we're going to see him somewhat acting like somebody who is not president of the United States if past his prologue. And, and, and speaking in that sort of Fox News code speak, where if you haven't been following a lot of this stuff, you'll have no idea what he's talking about. So here's the problem for Biden. Um, that and, and I said before, I, I think there's a certain amount of the gaff thing built into it, but he's going to be they're going to be judged by completely different standards. I mean, Biden will be judged as a kind of reasonably normal politician. Trump is Trump. And that's kind of the problem. Also, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sure you've given thought to all of this because you work in the digital in the digital world that there's the debate. And it's always been true. Then there's the post debate spin that sometimes the debates are won the day after the debate. And in this particular debate, this 90 minute debate will be broken up into a gazillion 30 second Internet means. Right. That both sides are going to claim that that they want. I mean, no matter what happens tonight, you know that the Trump fluffers are going to be out there saying, you know, on Facebook that Trump destroyed Biden and it's going to be out there. So this is this is like an act. This is like, you know, three or four or five acts. Right. In terms of how this actually plays out in which the actual real time debate may not actually be the most important thing. I mean, Charlie, again, if past is what do you disagree? No, but again, if if past is prologue, what we're going to see is uh, foreign agents pumping out Facebook ads with Biden stumbling in moments that he didn't actually stumble. That there will be like doctored video and that the president will retweet that. I mean, it's not it's not even a question of like what the response is going to be from Trump. It's going to be, you know, they would love to have real video, but if they don't have video, they'll make it up. And, well, see, this is, yeah, and, but they've been doing this too, and that's the 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 universality of those videos out there, even being pushed by you know anti anti Trump types, you know the you know the you know um, making it look like Joe Biden can't put together a sentence, which means that when he does put together a sentence, you know m- you know Pa's going to look at Ma and go, well, he doesn't seem that uh, that that crazy. Okay, let's just move on. Because oh, and also, I, and also I, when, yes, he, when he basically espouses values that are, you know, to the consternation of the great consternation of the left, 
Um, but you know, when you're an out of power power party, uh, there tends to be a lot of sitting on your concerns. Uh, to the great consternation of, of the left, when Joe Biden expresses himself, he is expressing values that fall pretty much within the mainstream of what you would call like center left to center right yeah. politics. I mean, they, you know, Ma and Pa watching this are not going to think to themselves, "God, Joe Biden sounds like you know, uh, sounds like Eugene Debs." You know, well, they're that, not going to think to themselves, Joe Biden sounds like so, like Hugo Chavez or, or uh, you know, or Castro. I mean, you know, <laughs> well, that, no, and, that, and that's that's the other big upside because they've invested huge amounts of money in saying, well, Joe, you know, what was the, you know, the the, the line from the AEI scholar that uh, I know how awful uh, Donald Trump is, but the the extreme left is going to force me to vote for him again. Well, if you've been telling people that this guy is basically just a puppet of Antifa and that he's a radical revolutionary Marxist, he's going to stand up there and go, you know, guys, really, come on. I mean, I'm not that guy. Joe Biden is the Democratic senator that, to the extent they knew it, Republicans liked when he was in the Senate. We're like, oh, that guy kind of makes sense. Okay, so let's talk about the New York (laughs) Times story about the taxes. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and they came out with this just extraordinary amount of detail about Donald Trump's taxes. By now, I think everybody, at least people who've listened to this podcast, know what what's what is what is in it. The fact that he only paid seven hundred and fifty dollars in taxes in uh, two thousand sixteen, two thousand seventeen, hadn't paid taxes and at all in ten of the previous fifteen years. And the reason he didn't pay taxes is not because he was so smart and clever or used appreciation, but because he was hemorrhaging so much cash. And the story today, I mean, it's a hell of a lead on, on the story today where he's bragging. I use my brain. I use my negotiating skills. I worked it all out, he told viewers. Now my company is bigger than ever, and it was stronger than it ever was. And the Times says it was all a hoax because he was just, his core businesses were shedding money. So I know it's tedious, Jonathan, to, to ask the question, does this make a difference? But it is interesting the way people are pounding away on that $750 number and saying, well, I paid more than $750. I did this. You know, when I was a when I was working at Starbucks, I did this, that that the average taxpayer pretty much knows how much they paid in taxes. So I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how hard Joe Biden hits him on this tonight. I mean, most taxpayers pay many multiples, many, you know, 10, 10. <laughs> You know, at least a multiple of 10 of that, um, you know, and so uh, they're going to be listening to that. And look, the the box that Trump is in is he can choose to say that he lied to the IRS. Or he can choose to say that he lied to the public about what a brilliant businessman he was. Um, And saying that he lied to the IRS is not a legal problem because he can just go out and say it, whether or not it's true. But he's not going to do that. He's not going to say he was lying about being a businessman. He's going to say this is fake news. And yet there's evidence of it that's incontrovertible. It's so difficult to contradict the evidence of it that the House Ways and Means chairman, uh, I'm sorry, ranking member Kevin Brady, is trying to open an investigation, uh, despite not having a, a gavel, is trying to open an investigation into who leaked it. You don't go after, you don't do a witch hunt on who leaked something if it's not true. but. I would argue that the bigger effect of this is Trump's uh, ratings on honesty and trustworthiness are very low. Um, And when you do something that appears to be deceptive, 
uh, that makes it makes your, your ratings on that usually go down. Uh, it is impossible for people to believe, and I say people, I mean outside of his base, to to believe what he's saying, which means when he makes an argument for himself on his, a debate stage, it has less value than it would if well, people believed what he was saying. And I'm sorry, Charlie, one more sort of yeah. one more thing I want to connect this to. His own taxes, like that affects us all in that, you know, you know, maybe he found a way to make it so that uh, that he didn't have to pull his weight, right? And and you can say, okay, well, you know, maybe he's he's smart and he used the tax code the right way, and he didn't tech, you know, he didn't technically cheat or do anything illegal. But the problem is with the deception. The problem with the duplicity is we've seen it from him in the presidency in places where it does matter. When he goes out and tells the public that the pandemic is not that bad, even though he knows that it's fa- so how fatal this disease is. People make decisions on their own safety based on what the president is saying. And we have seen, um, like the young woman at the Democratic Convention who said her father listened to Trump and went out and got coronavirus and died. Um, some of those deaths, according to this woman, are attributable to Donald Trump lying to the public about the severity of the disease. And I don't know if Joe Biden's going to make that connection or not. but. From my perspective, there is a difference between lying to the people about something that doesn't really affect them and lying to the people about something that does to the tune of 200,000 dead people, many more um, sickened and millions of jobs lost uh, and and the federal government having to spend trillions of dollars in debt financed uh, appropriations. Um, in order to try to recover from the economic calamity. I also think there's another threat to to Trump here, which is the the threat to his, you know, populist, his claim to be a populist. And he was able to pull that off, even though I'm the billionaire, um, I'm, I'm going to speak for the forgotten American. But, you know, when you start reading the dazzling details about the, you know, the $70,000 haircuts and the fake deals with Ivanka and the, the fact that billionaires can pay only $750 in, in, in taxes. It really, I think, you know, if, if, if Biden handles it well, it undercuts Trump with those voters that had been the core for him back in 2016, because, you know, it, it is hard to sit back and go, okay, there's something deeply wrong with America. I mean, you, I'm sorry, you, you, you step back and you go, there's something deeply wrong with America with a system in which somebody could be this rich and pay so much less than I pay. And so in terms of that class warfare, in, in terms of inequality and the elitist versus populist, this, I think, gives Biden an opening that he was already exploiting, but also it's a vulnerability because let's face it. That populist claim by Donald Trump was always fake. It was always fake. This has been a, a, a president who ran as a populist but governed as a plutocrat. And, and this puts this front and center again. Yeah, and it's a, such an easy argument to make, which is, it is. Which is uh, I can lower your taxes if people like Donald Trump pay theirs. Ooh. That's, that's, that's good. Like, it's just, I mean, it's like, this is not a difficult concept. Um, just even within the realm of the, and and by the way, I I don't think the taxes in and of themselves, like hurt Trump badly with his base. I think the base is so attached to him, you know, the, the sort of cult of Trump. I mean, you hear the arguments that come back and they say, well, was it, was it illegal? Can you prove it was illegal? Right. And if you say, well, this looks like it might've been illegal, you know, with the, you know, paying consulting fees to, 
uh, someone who's actually a member of the board of directors of the company or, or something along those lines where you say, like, look, this is not something where the IRS would look favorably upon it, whether or not it's technically legal. The next thing is, well, is it wrong? You know, or should we have taxes? And the responses are, um, you know, distracting from that. Where I think it matters, though, is with the people who voted for Trump because they couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton um, or voted for Trump because they believed he would be better for uh, the economy or for their own personal economy. Uh, and have not found that to be true over the course of the last four years. Not, well, it, not the people that yeah. loved him, but the people right. that were willing to accept him. And, and there was a huge portion of of his base, um, and I can't stress this strongly enough, who really did buy the aura that he was a successful, competent businessman, that they were very, very attracted by that. And they believed all of that. And because I remember sort of fighting against saying, well, what about Trump University and Trump Stakes and Trump's airline and all these other failed companies? And somehow that didn't register. And it probably won't register again. You know, but as we started off talking about that fight for the two or three percent, if there's the perception that it's not just the taxes, it's also the lying and also the failure and the hemorrhaging, the fact that he's just not that good a businessman and that he is an elitist who's been gaming the the country. So I guess that's 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 the the theme that's running through a couple of these. But I'm, I'm looking at the various things that have hit him in the last month, you know, maybe, or the last several months. Obviously, you have the pandemic, you have the job losses, you have the story about the, the taxes. You had the big story a couple of weeks ago about uh, his his, you know, looking down on soldiers as 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 losers and suckers, which I heard I think hurt him a lot. This story seems to imply that people who pay taxes are losers and suckers. And then there's this other story. And again, who knows how much of this breaks through, if any of it at all. The story that's in the Atlantic this morning by McKay Coppins, who has awfully good sources, that Trump secretly mocks his Christian supporters. Let me just read you uh, one paragraph. In private, many of Trump's comments about religion are marked by cynicism and contempt, according to people who have worked for him. Former aides told me, McKay Coppins, that they've heard Trump ridicule conservative religious leaders, dismiss various faith groups with cartoonish stereotypes, and deride certain rights and doctrines held sacred by many of the Americans who constitute his base. I guess I sometimes wonder, Jonathan, whether there's kind of a cumulative weight where people just, it's not one thing. It's not one story. It's just the, the kind of the, yeah, this is this guy. This is a guy who is not like us. This is a guy who looks down on people like me. Uh, and again, you only need two, three, four percent to make a tremendous difference in this race. So I wonder whether or not this drip, drip, drip has a cumulative effect on him at the moment when he needs to stage a comeback. I mean, I think this was the problem Hillary Clinton faced in 2016, right? I mean, there was just so much weighing down on her. Uh, she was so much on defense uh, for so long in that uh, election. Um, and I think Trump now faces the same thing. He's got a tremendous weight of uh, baggage and then, you know, sort of self-imposed baggage. I mean, his big promise from the last election was that he was going to build a wall that Mexico was going to pay for. Oh, yeah. That was the number one oh, yeah. promise of the Trump administration. <laughs> um, and I, you know, I just look at that and I'm like, you know, uh, from the, de you know, from the Democrats point of view, they're not going to mock him for, for, uh, for the fact that there's not a wall that they didn't want. They will mock him for incompetence on the one thing that he promised. Um, and, you know, that has the sort of effect of people like 
looking around and going, wait, you know, that's that's kind of right. You know, like he didn't do the one thing he said he was going to do first and foremost. So I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I don't think it's one thing. Um, I think it's the weight of a lot of things. As far as the McKay Coppins reporting, um, it seems to me like that's the kind of thing that uh, that you would see um, as a, a highlighted piece in the vice presidential debate um, where there might be an, a, an attempt to make Mike Pence answer for uh, Donald Trump's treatment of religion, um, you know, whether it's, you know, stormtrooping over protesters in Washington to stand in front of a church with a, you know, the Bible raised um, and, you know, Trump not really having any clue about what's in the book that he's holding um, to these questions of what does he say about evangelicals in private, um, you know, to the, to the sort of obvious efforts to manipulate uh, segments of the population with, with things that he doesn't actually seem to believe. And, and it's all plausible. I think that's part of it is, is that when you hear these stories, it seems consistent with with the doubts that you've had. OK, so speaking of other things that are developing, and I, I, I always I feel guilty after every one of these podcasts for not spending more time on the coronavirus. And, you know, 200,000 is not just a, a statistic. I mean, that's it's it is it is a national ongoing tragedy. And, you know, I'm here in Wisconsin and we're having a significant outbreak. We have not really been affected that much by the coronavirus to the extent of, say, you know, other other states. But um, states now reporting nearly 22 percent positive tests. Uh, and this outbreak is very intense in northeast Wisconsin, the Green Bay area. And interestingly enough, Donald Trump plans to hold rallies Saturday at airports in Green Bay, one, one in Green Bay and one in La Crosse. And uh, that's an area experiencing the second highest rate of infection in the country. Uh, the lacrosse is the Green Bay area has the sixth highest rate. So the timing doesn't seem good. And it, it, it does seem that that there is this this confluence of events that's making it harder for for him to come back. So tell me, you're working on the book, you do your regular reporting. What is the mood? What are you picking up from the people that you know on both sides? Are Democrats feeling more hopeful? Or are they still suffering from PTSD? Uh, do Republicans see what's coming down the track? What 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 do, what what do they say when they're not on the record? Uh, Democrats are, um, I think, you know, like a couple weeks ago, they were in the place where they were in twenty sixteen to some extent, and and I think this is true now too, where they feel like they're in a good place uh, to win the election. They are more than cautiously optimistic. They are optimistic. Um, and, uh, and, and I don't think they assume that Trump is going to lose, but they feel like they're in a good, as good a place as they can be. Um, at the same time, there is that sort of PTSD, <laughs> uh, you know, the second they start thinking they might win, they <laughs> immediately start thinking, how is this, how are we going to blow this? Um, you know, on the Republican side, I think it, it, it's also similar to what you saw in 2016, which is that like. Trump needs to win. Trump needs to to pull it inside straight or shoot the moon or whatever you know cards metaphor you want. Um, but that that ex- that possibility still exists, um, and that it has not been foreclosed. And you can put together an electoral map where Donald Trump wins more than two hundred seventy electoral votes. Um, you know, basically on states that he won last time with a couple of uh, a couple of subtractions. I you know I think Wisconsin is is fascinating, Charlie. Uh, and particularly, you mentioned Green Bay. You know this better than I do. But Brown County, Wisconsin, around Green Bay, 
is one of those counties that uh, was strong for Obama in 2008, weak for Obama, but for Obama in 2012, and then moved significantly into the Trump camp in uh, in 2016. And I, I, I'm curious to, I'm going to watch Brown County, Wisconsin closely on election night because you've got that coronavirus outbreak. And also the other thing in Wisconsin, I'm curious what, you, what your thoughts are on this, but, um, you know, not so far away from certainly in the same media markets uh, to some extent as uh, as Kenosha down down to the south. Um, I think it's one thing for the president to warn about uh, rioting and civil unrest um, and what would happen if the Democrats were in control and Antifa and all those things uh, in places where it's not actually happening. But I my sense is that whoever you are. Uh, almost exclusively people do want um, civility. They do want safety and security. And that in Wisconsin, you've actually seen uh, the effects of the president adding fuel, or at least seen him adding fuel to a fire that is on your doorstep. Um, and that that may have a negative effect for him, even though in, in there are probably places where you know it, it helps him with his base. No, I think I think that's true. And I, I, I think that that there's been a lot of focus on how strong the base for for him is um, in Wisconsin. The Republican base is is, is, is quite adamantly for, for Trump. But it's but in a state like this, that base is not large enough. And you're looking at some of these polls, um, which um, I, look, I'm, I'm raising my eyebrows at polls showing uh, Biden up by 10. I think it would be more like five or six. But, yeah, that has not worked here for him. And could I just just throw out a little journalistic thing here? Sure. This is, it's it, 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 it's 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 kind of hilarious how every national reporter has decided to come to Cedarburg, Wisconsin, which is next door to where I live. It's my backyard, basically. And it's just a fantastic little town. It's one of the great American towns. But it's like everybody, everybody from <laughs> Time Magazine. To, I mean, it's like it's like it's it's in the card. Charlotte and, Alter from Time just camped out it, there. It, well, no, and she did a great job, you yeah. know. And, and, and Tim Alberta, these are great reporters. All of these reports have been fantastic. But Cedarburg is Cedarburg. And it's kind of Trumpy. It's very Catholic. And I would just suggest if you're coming back here, go just a little bit south because, you know, all suburbs are not the same. And you look at and I wrote about this in my newsletter last week. You know, if you look at these suburbs in Milwaukee County, some of those suburbs where I grew up, these are suburbs that used to be 70 percent Republican that are going to be 70 percent Democratic this year. Right. You should, and, go, to, you should go to the places where where uh, the median household income is you know, closer to 50,000 than, than a hundred thousand. Um, and you should go to places where there is a, uh, a white suburb, largely white suburb next to a largely black suburb. And you should talk to the voters there who were Trump voters last time, because I think that's where you're, you're going to see movement. Yeah. And, and, and I think you are seeing movement. And I, I, I think some of those, those suburbs are going to be, um, really, um, are going to move very heavily against Trump. There's, there's also, again, even in the Wow counties, I think there's going to be some, uh, some, some softness. So, uh, but you know, before, before I let you go here, uh, the, the big news of the day, at least in terms of polls, where we have two polls out of Pennsylvania, and and, and as much as I think the election will be decided by Wisconsin, because well, I live in Wisconsin, um, <laughs> it's really, really hard to see Donald Trump winning the presidency without winning Pennsylvania. So we first got that New York Times Siena poll. 
showing Biden with a nine-point lead. And then at midnight, we got the ABC Washington Post poll also showing a nine-point lead. Um, that's a big deal in, Pens- in, the, in, in Pennsylvania. And the numbers are just staggering when you look at what's happening with women. Uh, it's old story to have a gender gap, but you know, this is really quite amazing. I mean, he's just getting blown out in the suburbs and in among women. Uh, Trump is at this point. And I, I, I can't I can't see Trump winning without winning Pennsylvania. Would, would, I mean, you can do a map, but just realistically, I just don't. Yeah, see that I, no, I think if he I think if he loses Pennsylvania, the election's over for him. Um, because I think it also if he loses Pennsylvania, you're going to see other places like Pennsylvania moving into the Biden camp. Like, I think if he loses Pennsylvania, he also loses Wisconsin. Um, and Michigan, I think Michigan's gone for Trump. Um, and, you know, we see polls that show Ohio competitive. Um, that shouldn't have been a problem for Trump, but he went and promised manufacturing jobs, and then we saw factories closing down in Ohio. Um, so, you know, <laughs> uh, I you know, the reality of the Trump presidency for um, for so many people in that, uh, in, in those middle income, lower and middle income, uh, brackets, uh, has been so different than what he says from a stage. And, and there's proof points now. There weren't proof points in 2016. He hadn't been president. Uh, this is, this is difficult for him. I do believe that there is, um, you know, some hidden Trump vote in polling. That is to say, I think that that there are a lot of Trump people who simply won't reply to pollsters. I think it's harder to get a feel for that. But I also think that um, a lot of those undecideds break in the last week or so, and they tend to break in one direction, you know, seven to seven to three or eight to two uh, out of every 10. Um, And he's at a point where he really needs something to shake up this race to make sure that, that they don't break against him. Uh, Because I think there's a significant, significant part of the electorate that's usually just kind of like screw it let's let's grab somebody new unless they're feeling you know really secure about where they are and i I don't know anybody who feels really secure right now yeah jonathan allen from nbc thank you so much for joining us again on the podcast we always appreciate it cannot wait to see your book next year thank you charlie really appreciate it and thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. By the way, if you are a member of our new Bulwark Plus, um, you will be able to join us for a special post-debate live Zoom chat with the whole Bulwark team. So uh, just check that out. Uh, you can see, see the get the links uh, from the newsletters. If you're not yet a member of Bulwark Plus, you have time to sign up for that. And of course, uh, we will have a special post-debate podcast tomorrow um, when we will be back. And do this all over again. Okay, so don't.